So I'm here with Rick Levine at Norwac 2011. Rick is a very accomplished and a wonderful astrologer in the Pacific Northwest, as he likes to call it. <laughs> and um, his he has a daily horoscope column translated into several languages, published on Tarot.com. Does a prolific amount of work for them uh, daily and for his own uh, website in conjunction with Jeff Jower Star IQ. Um, Rick, what are you what are you up to these days? What are you working on? These days, I'm writing a lot of words. Uh, I, I write about a thousand words a day uh, in a daily column uh, that is allegedly the most widely read daily column in the world. That's what they, whoever they are, say, but I have no idea about that for sure. Um, and on top of that, Jeff Jower and I are in the midst of writing our 2013 book. Uh, this will be our seventh or eighth. It's our seventh or eighth book. Uh, six, seven, eight, eight nine, according 11, to Jeff. 12, 13. It's our eighth book. Um, and these are annual books that are published by Sterling Press, which is owned by Barnes & Noble. And the, the, the one that we're working on right now is Your Astrology Guide 2013. The 2011 is out already. The 2012 book will hit the stands in July, available at Barnes & Noble, bn.com, and Amazon, and wherever. Um, and so between those, two, um, between those two projects, I write a lot of words. On top of that, I do see clients, and uh, I've been doing some lecturing and teaching. Jeff and I um, are doing these week-long venues. Um, we have Mexico, San Miguel de Allende, Mexico, coming up November 5th through 12th. That's this year, 2011. And um, that's a sweep of the outer planets over the next several years. And we'll work with individual charts talking about how people can actually embrace the changes and co-create their future rather than feeling mm, as if the waves are just washing over them. And, um, and then Jeff and I will be co-facilitating another workshop. It'll be our third, our fourth in Bali um, a year from now or a year and a half from now, next um, September, that's September of 2013 in Bali, in September of 2012 in Bali. And then we'll be doing a week-long retreat uh, in February of 2013 in Goa, India. And information can be found on all of these workshops at Heaven and Earth. That's one word, Heaven and Earth Workshops, heavenandearthworkshops.com. So, Rick, I've talked to lots of folks about uh, Uranus and Pluto, but nobody's brought up Jupiter and Taurus, which you're about to talk about in about an hour. So what are your thoughts about how Jupiter interacts with uh, what's going on right now in the sky? Well, it's really difficult to say. Jupiter. It's easier to talk about what Jupiter's effect on the ongoing or unfolding Uranus-Pluto square is when Jupiter is in Aries than what it might be when it's in Taurus or Gemini because when Jupiter was in Aries, it was feeding right into the same energy. Um, and in 2013, when Jupiter moves into Cancer, when it's in Cancer, it again will be back in the mix. This time it will be opposing Pluto and squaring Uranus. And so I think it's more important when it does that. But if anything, Jupiter in Taurus 
I think will help perhaps steady the energies a little bit. At least that's what I'm hoping. I mean, we're on a wild course, and as Jupiter uh, as Jupiter enters Taurus over these next few over over the next week, but hangs out there over the next year um, by sign at least during that entire time and exact for a month or so, it will be forming a harmonious trine with Pluto. And so theoretically that can reduce some of the um, stress and tension from the impending and building um, Uranus-Pluto square. Now remember, a lot of people are talking about the Uranus-Pluto square as being um, something that will be with us from 2012 through 2015 because it occurs seven times from uh, the summer of 2012 through the spring of 2015. But the fact is that this summer, 2011, um, Uranus moves close enough that it comes within less than a degree of orb of being exact to the square to Pluto. So even though by retrograde it backs off before making it exact next, next summer, the fact is that, that right now we're already on the front wave of that and arguably have been on the front wave of that since Uranus you know, ticked on into Aries on the day of the Japanese earthquakes and the Fukushima meltdown. I'm wondering, I saw a talk you gave, you gave at the Oregon Astrology Association about a year ago that was probably one of the more entertaining and insightful talks on a revolution. Um, and, you know, you were, you were talking about the upcoming revolutionary energies as Uranus was going to move into Aries and its connection with uh, energy from the 60s. And I'm wondering how you felt when you saw uh, images on the news of the, of the revolutionary activity in Egypt this year. Well... Yeah, I think that the, from an astrological point of view, the, the, the revolutionary state that we're in right now and will be for the next number of years certainly can be partially described by Uranus's move into Aries. Um, and, and my theme song for that has been Michael Franti's Yell Fire, which you can fade in now and fade out. Now, the, the idea of, of, of yell fire, it's, it's a fire in the sky. There's a sense of spontaneity of, you know, of release, of, um, of pressure, of tension, and so on. But I don't think it's the Uranus and Aries that is the revolutionary energy right now, even though that's revolutionary. I think it's the Uranus squaring Pluto, releasing or at least bringing up the sense of immediacy or urgency around the energy that was created at the seed period when Uranus joined or conjuncted Pluto in the mid-1960s. So we had the energy that arguably began maybe as early as the Berkeley free speech movement and all the way up through um, the early 70s that we call the 60s. And I think now, as Uranus is already moving into the square with Pluto and will continue to over the next several years, we're in a decade-long or at least multi-year-long um, revisitation to these same issues that include environmental issues, um, suffrage issues, um, uh, uh, voting, human rights, uh, gender issues, um, uh, political freedom, suppression, and in some ways what's happened 
over these past months already um, in Tunisia and in Bahrain and in Egypt and and what's happening in um, um, in in other countries along the or around the Gulf Coast in some ways are very similar to what happened in the United States um, in the mid mid 60s. The difference, though, is there's several differences. One of them is the political climate in which they're happening. All these revolutions are not Egypt. Some of them are being, you know, you know, shut down as fast as they as they open up. Now, what will happen with those, and how violent or vicious or 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 tense um, those will become over the next years, uh, months, or years you know, remains to be seen. But I think we are missing something when we talk about the revolutions in the Mideast. Because we had 100,000 people on the streets in Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> you know, this is, like, this is like middle America. Granted, Madison is one of those cities in the United States that probably include Ashland, Asheville, Santa Monica, you know, Boulder, Austin. These, these, are, these are cities that are really not where they belong. They're, they're like, like people's republics of, you know, consciousness of some sort. And Madison may be a, a, a lesser version of one of those. But the fact is that what happened in Madison is a taste of what we're in for in the United States. And that is that, that what we call the left and what we call the right have some very fundamental similarities in what they want. And I think that we will see um, on the streets of the United States of America, the same kind of revolution that we saw in the 60s, but at a conjunction, the Uranus-Pluto conjunction in the 60s, there's a sense of unconsciousness because a new moon or any conjunction, one planet is lining up with the other and so there's no place for awareness. At the 90 degree angle, however, you have the ability to see the differences and to either be, you know, to be overwhelmed by them or to engage in the conflict or to, or to dynamically resolve or work on creative resolution of these, you know, maximum interference patterns that are being set up by the 90 degree angle. And so I think that it's not just about what's happening in the Mideast. I think we'll see things in China, in Pakistan, in India, certainly in the United States. Um, obviously, what's happened there is very profound, profound and powerful and was as unexpected as some of the student revolutions that happened in the, um, in the 60s, that flowering. But I think also this will be fueled by the fallout, and unfortunately I use that word not only in the metaphorical sense, but in the actual literal sense of the fallout from Fukushima, which um, has dropped away from the news. I mean, it was like a big deal for a week or two or three. The fact is that, that from what I've read, um, Fukushima is as significantly a mess today, or maybe even more so, um, than it was when it first unfolded. And when it unfolded, it was huge news, but it's a total blackout on it. And so something there has yet to follow through, even as we talk about the other Uranus moving into Aries or the Jupiter-Uranus conjunctions, and we look at the Gulf of Mexico, the, you know, the, the oil disaster there, we haven't begun to see the fallout from those. 
And, and so as those environmental issues hit bigger and bigger, it doesn't matter whether you are right, left, or center. You don't want to eat fish that's radioactive, and you don't want the radioactivity to be falling on you. And if we learned one thing during the Exxon Valdez disaster a couple decades ago, um, that is that, you know, that Saturn says that there are real limitations and even Neptune's idea of, of the oceans being vast and boundless, um, we have this now kind of sense that, that we're on a little tiny island and what happens there is also happening here. And so I think that this, this kind of instantaneity of feedback that happens from the digital um, you know, information age, whether it's Twitter you know, and Facebook in the Mideast revolutions, um, or whether it's just news that leaks out um, as the radiation uh, story is trying to be suppressed in Fukushima, I think it's going to be too difficult to keep the information hidden. And I think that this kind of information will fuel something that we've never seen before. Yeah. So earlier, Georgia Stathis was talking about the uh, potential difference between this upcoming Pluto-Uranus square um, relative to the phase that it's in, so that it's in the opening phase of the square versus the closing end of the, of the square. Um, have you taken a look at that at all? Was, is that something you've thought about? Or? Well, yes, and if you go back historically, the best example I, that I can come up with, I, I have research and notes on this, but the best example I can come, with, come up with off the top of my head, um, because there's many similarities, is the Uranus-Pluto conjunction of 1455. Uh, one of its similarities, Uranus-Pluto joined in 1455, as it did in 1966. One of the similarities between these two conjunctions, although removed from each other by, you know, five centuries, um, is that they were both very quickly followed by a Uranus-Neptune conjunction. In other words, we had a Uranus-Pluto conjunction in the mid-60s that created this explosion of awareness, bacchanalian expression of Plutonic urges in freedom, lightning-like expressions through sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and of course political unrest and upheaval. It was quickly followed by, in 1989 to 93, the exact was in 93, was Uranus aligning with Neptune rather than Pluto. Interestingly, when Uranus aligned with Pluto, Pluto was the farthest planet from the Sun. When Uranus aligned with, with Neptune in 1993, Neptune was the farthest planet from the Sun. It was outside the orbit of Pluto at that time. So those people who experienced this incredible outer planet shock awakening in the mid-60s experienced it again in their lifetime. I mean, these are cycles that only happen every other century. So what happened in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, with maps being redrawn, with the, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the fall of the Soviet Union, um, with environmentalism rebirthing the Exxon Valdez being part of that, um, or that event, um, with all that was happening in, in the re resurgence of art, of music, of Nirvana and Paul, you know, Pearl Jam and, and grunge, and the whole movement that was... It, that that the relationship between the mid-60s and the early 90s is very similar to the relationship between 1455 when Gutenberg invented the printing press and printed the Bible, and 1479, which was, which was a Uranus-Neptune conjunction, 
in which time Plato hit the printing press, translated by astrologer Marsilio Ficino from Greek into Latin. But what happened was that the church lost control. And all of a sudden, the printing press was getting information out that was non-biblical, non-church. It was Plato, it was the Corpus Hermetica, it was all the stuff that fed and fueled the Reformation um, later on. By the same token, we have now the internet, which kind of came at the um, Uranus-Neptune conjunction of 1993, give or take a few years, but it was at the Uranus-Pluto conjunction in the mid-60s that IBM introduced the first business computer, the System 36. So we have that same analog of the Gutenberg press followed by freedom of expression through press, and then the IBM computer, which was meant to print the book of capitalism, and then the internet, which in some ways may be the downfall, like the Reformation was for the church, may be the downfall of nationalism and capitalism. Now, where this fits into the opening square is that going back to the 1450, 1455 Uranus-Pluto conjunction, it was in the 1490s that the Uranus-Pluto square occurred just after the Uranus-Neptune conjunction in 1479. Same pattern that we have now. Well, the 1490s was the age of exploration. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. You know, this is the mind opening up and exploring the earth in ways that was built upon the information that was printed on the printing presses, maps and tables, etc. And so I think that the opening square is in some ways the age of exploration, even though it's, to use the Rudyard's terms of the opening square, it's a crisis in action, because it's outward going rather than the closing square, which is a crisis in consciousness. And so I think here that what's happening is so important. It's in cardinal signs. These are beginning, initiating signs. It's the opening square. This is the first test of what the thoughts and concepts that were birthed during the conjunction or at the new moon, so to speak, in the 60s. So now we get this sense of greater sense of urgency, immediacy, what's going to work, what's not going to work, which of these things is actually going to happen and which is going to fall away. And so I think that in some ways the square is much more dynamic, not only because it's in cardinal signs as opposed to the conjunction in the 60s that was in Virgo and mutable signs, but, but also because it's the square, and the square, the opening square in particular, is dynamic. What do you see as astrology's rightful place in our culture? You know, we have people who, um, we hear this a lot, people say, do you believe in astrology? And other people say, how do you prove astrology? You know, is astrology a science? Is it an art? Is it religion? You know, what is it? What, where do you see its proper fit in our culture? The question of belief in astrology is interesting because on one hand, if you don't believe in it, you're not going to put enough energy or effort into it to gain any awareness about it. On the other hand, um, as James Hillman has often said, I don't believe in astrology any more than I would believe in a monkey wrench. If it's the right tool, I'll use it. It doesn't require belief. Chemistry doesn't require belief in order for hydrogen and oxygen in the right proportions to be mixed and to create water. It doesn't require that you know astrology in order for a Saturn transit of your natal moon to precipitate a sequence of archetypal um, events that may then precipitate specific um, you know, changes and events in your life. Um, 
So I think it's not about whether we believe in it or not. It's about whether or not we choose to utilize the base of information that astrology affords us to grow our awareness, to grow our consciousness, because as the Buddhists point out, the only thing that we really can change is our awareness. Um, as Freud said the same thing, I mean, he didn't put it in those words, but the whole idea of depth psychology is to change one's perspective or to change one's awareness. So if I can use astrology to get a sense of larger cycles, to see the repetitive patterns, then maybe I don't necessarily have to be victim to them. I don't necessarily get to automatically change everything, but by infusing awareness, at least I can then introduce the concept, the possibility of free choice. Thanks. Thanks for taking some time out to talk with us today. And, and uh, tell us again, uh, where, do, where do you find you if people uh, want to contact you online? Da well, dailyhoroscope.com. One word, dailyhoroscope.com has my daily column. It also has a daily video that Jeff and I record that we do, um, an audio, and it's probably the best place to track me down. Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you.